Hello and welcome back to Rising. I am back at the desk today with Shermichael Singleton, always dapper. I know, thank you, Brittany. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun to be back for another day of Rising. All right, well, we have a lot of really good news for you. Well, I don't know about good, but a lot of news for <laughs> a lot you. Of news, right? <laughs> first up, Republicans have announced their first three witnesses in the impeachment inquiry hearings into President Joe Biden. They'll ask uh, Bruce Dubinsky, a forensic accountant, Eileen O'Connor, a former Justice Department tax attorney, and conservative legal scholar Jonathan Turley to weigh in on the business dealings of the Biden family. Oversight Committee Chair James Comer told Fox over the weekend, quote, we want to know what happened with the money once received by the Bidens in their personal account. This hearing is planned for Thursday. Now, former Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi hit at Republicans' impeachment effort while on MSNBC yesterday. Let's check in. The fact is that they have no goods. You know, they've been for months and months and months trying to make some kind of a, a charge. The, I don't think they'll ever bring it to the floor. They, don't, they won't have the votes. Mm -hmm. There are members in districts that President Biden won. Oh, not that they're so fond of President Biden, but they, uh, these voters will say that's just not the right way to go. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody was on my case in 2007, when we got the majority, and they wanted us to impeach President Bush mm -hmm. for the, the war in Iraq, the misrepresentations going in, departing from Afghanistan too soon, all of that. But you, if you have a difference of opinion, you just can't be impeaching, impeaching. On the other hand, this is a fake distraction, as you said. Meanwhile, Hunter Biden is again fortifying his legal offensive in the wake of the new federal gun charges. The Hill tweet he's suing Rudy Giuliani, accusing the former Trump lawyer of illegally disseminating his private laptop data. The Biden White House has denied any pay-for-play scheme and has referred all questions regarding the Hunter Biden investigation to the Department of Justice. Mm. All right, sure, Michael. Do you think Pelosi is right? She's raised two points. Yeah. One, that there are aren't, in her opinion, going to be enough votes for Republicans to impeach in the House regardless. Right. Yeah. Um, pointing specifically to the fact that there are Republicans in uh, districts that Biden won who just don't <laughs> want to vote for that re-election, of course. Okay, so you agree with that yes. point. And what about this other point, which might be only secondary given the first point, but that she's making the case that there's just no goods. There's been investigations well, ongoing for a long time that there's, they're unlikely yeah, to find I, I, anything. I mean, I, I don't know if you can necessarily say that. I mean, the point of bringing in a forensic accountant, I would presume, is to really see where money was moving and to whom. And so then I, I think once you talk to that individual and that person has an opportunity to go through probably hundreds, if not thousands of pages of financial documents, that'll really tell us whether or not there was some malpractice between the president's son and the president himself. But I have to tell you, Bree, overall, I would prefer for House Republicans to focus on kitchen table issues. Mm. I think this is going to be a very, very tight election. And I think the last thing uh, the American people want is more hyper-partisanship and tribalism. They want their political leaders to work for them. I get that some within the Republican base uh, want this. And I do believe if something 
inappropriate did occur, illegal did occur, we should investigate it. But I just would caution uh, Republicans not to go down the rabbit hole with this. Yeah, look, I'm inclined to agree. I, I saw a number of uh, leftists and others pointing out that there was much more time spent uh, in the Senate having discussions about uh, John Fetterman's attire. Whatever you think about <laughs> it, there was more time de dedicated to John Fetterman's yeah. attire than the fact that the child poverty rate just doubled. So um, I de it does seem like there's a real uh, priority mismatch there. Uh, what about what do you make of, of Nancy Pelosi bragging as she's done before that she declined to impeach Bush? Yeah. Bush is that something that she should be proud of? I mean, not necessarily because what it sort of signals. I would argue, for some people watching that, that this entire thing is all about politics. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, we didn't impeach him for maybe they liked him a little bit more, whatever the case may be, but we did impeach Trump. And so some Trump voters may say, oh, well, this was all political because they just despised the guy so much because he attempted to take a wrecking ball to the Washington establishment. I'm not saying whether or not that is a legitimate argument or not, but I can see how some could arrive to that after listening to that statement. Look. Again, Bree, I think Washington has become too politicized. It's become too much about political leaders and their particular interest groups, particularly those with monies, to put money in their coffers, right? And less about the districts they represent or the states that they represent and, and the struggles of hardworking people, regardless of where they may fall along the ideological lines. And so I think people want a hard reset. I think people are tired of politics as, as usual. I think it's why people don't want Biden or Trump. They want someone else. But unfortunately, we don't have another option that appears to be capable of winning in a national election. Uh, so overall, I, I, I get the politics of it, but I would say to the speaker and, and even the former speaker and to the current speaker, let's try to move the country forward in a bipartisan way to accomplish something that's meaningful for hardworking people. I, I think I asked you this maybe yesterday, but I'm still struggling with this idea that the polls suggest, I completely agree, mm -hmm. that most Americans don't want a Biden-Trump matchup. There are primaries ongoing. The Democratic Party has done much more than the Republican Party to shut its primary down. They've said that incumbents don't have to participate in debates. The news media, the uh, mainstream news media, largely ignores the presence of RFK Jr. or Marion Williamson yeah. in the race, yeah. despite the fact that both of them have polled higher than most of the Republican field. I think the only, you know, Ron DeSantis has been up in the like 20-ish, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, which RFK Jr. also was. But regardless, the Democratic Party has shut it down. The Republican Party has been having a real primary, although Donald Trump has not been participating in the debates. At all. And yet, <laughs> even given that the Republicans are allowing there to be a primary, no one has been able to break through. So how, how do you close the gap between Republicans don't want Trump to be the nominee, Democrats don't want Biden to be the nominee, and yet here we are with the opportunity for Republicans to choose someone <laughs> yeah, else, and, they don't and want it's still not else. happening. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is at least, what, a third or a fourth of the Republican Party voting electorate who believe Trump should be given a second opportunity. And that's really interesting, because if you ask those individuals about a second choice, would you vote for someone else if it were not Trump, most of them say absolutely yes. Uh, and so I think it presents an, a, an interesting dichotomy, Bree, in many ways, because people are saying, and on one hand, I don't want this guy, but then some are saying, but I do want this guy. 
But if given but a better alternative, I'll vote for the other alternative, and yet they're not deciding to vote for any of the alternatives. Yes, I, I completely understand the argument that Trump has a base that is very committed. If it's 20 percent, 30 percent, 35 percent, whatever it is, it's nowhere near 50 percent. No, it's not. But the interesting part is when you look at the polling data on this, about, I think, 17 percent, if I remember the numbers correctly, who are sort of persuadables are saying, well, if Trump is a nominee, they will support him. And so I, I think that 38 to 39 percent that have allowed Trump to be so resounding for so long, so resoundingly strong, it sort of persuades others to say, well, he probably is going to be the nominee, so I should support but him that, versus but, someone but else. That logic, I got to say, feels so destructive. You see polls showing that Nikki Haley could even beat yeah. uh, Joe Biden. And this was a yeah. similar situation the Democratic Party was back in and back in 2016, where poll after poll after poll showed that Bernie Sanders consistently uh, had a much bigger margin against Donald Trump in a head-to-head matchup than Hillary Clinton. But the mainstream media pushed this electability narrative that disadvantaged, ironically, Bernie Sanders. So I do wonder what role both the mainstream conservative media and uh, conservative politicians are playing party leadership and not telegraphing that people really do have options. Because what it does seem, that what it does feel like is like there's a kind of political capture happening at the top of the party where there's no validators but, of public but, opinion but remember, from within the party. But remember what I said yesterday. Even if, when you look at, uh, I think it was a, a political poll, I can't remember which outlet produced this a couple months ago, two months ago, but you take Trump's 39 percent, I think if you were to give him the 17% that are persuadable but leaning Trump, and then you remove everybody else and then give them all of the remaining percentage points, that it's still not enough to surpass him. Right, but I'm not, I'm not trying to tally up why he's going to win the primary. I sure, understand why sure, he's going to win the primary. Sure. The question is why it is that if, if most Republican voters don't want Trump, period, mm -hmm. why, one, there hasn't emerged someone who is a, people are able to willing to coalesce yeah. around, and two, given how many Republicans there are, I think we went through three different candidates yesterday that had a head-to-head -head matchup, beat um, uh, Biden. Why, what is deficient about those well, other— Well, only, only one. It was just Nikki Haley. DeSantis loses by one point, and then Trump was in a statistical Interesting, tie. I definitely saw a poll within the last week that showed even Tim Scott uh, could beat uh, Biden in a head-to-head -head matchup. But regardless, why isn't it that, given that there are these other people mm -hmm. who have been demonstrated, at least by in the basis of polls, yeah. as potential winners in, the, yeah, in a general I mean, election? Again, Wait a minute. Let me just, yeah, let me just yeah, finish ahead, this ahead. point. Given that's— the case. Mm -hmm. um, why isn't there a more robust? I think to me the root of the problem has to come from the fact that the party itself is not willing to validate an alternative to Donald Trump, and the reason that the party itself, no party well, not, leadership, I, isn't I, I able willing to validate anybody alternative to Trump is because they are captured by Donald Trump, and they have all seen what I, happens I don't if think you speak I, out against him. I don't think I agree with that. Um, I think whether it's from the RNC to the more establishment elements of the party that still, for the most part, still run the more central components of the Republican Party, as I understand it, they did want someone else. It was it was it was Ron DeSantis. That did not work out. How many out. endorsements then, has Ron DeSantis secured from leadership in the Republican Party? The national endorsements are irrelevant. It's the state endor endorsements that are relevant. And, and wait, wait, hold on, let me finish. And endorsements from Ohio, Iowa, and New Hampshire, DeSantis was actually raking them up pretty quickly. He actually was. And that's what really matters versus 
Ted Cruz endorsing Ron DeSantis or, or some other senator or congressperson endorsing Ron DeSantis. I think that will have less of an impact based on what we know historically from data versus someone in a, at the state level who's a state legislature, a state senator, a state representative, a mayor. Th that, I believe, would have a far more direct imp impact on people deciding whether or not to give their support to that person. But with that said— And how many endorsements it, it of that sort has Ron DeSantis I, I, I don't know, I don't know the New exact Hampshire. number, but, but I do know it, it is quite a bit because political wrote about this, the Atlantic wrote about this. Just do a, a quick Google search. But I do know he, he was getting quite a few endorsements in Iowa, Ohio. But my point remains the same. It doesn't matter because if you're a Republican voter and you're seeing how strong Donald Trump is in the polls, then you're thinking, well, is it worth giving my support to someone else? Probably not because it's probably not going to make a difference. But that's not politically what you should be thinking about. If you're well, a mayor, I mean, wait, if you're the mayor, if you're a, a, a governor or a mayor in a place like Iowa mm -hmm. or New Hampshire, the only reason you wouldn't vote your conscience or sure. articulate your preferences and say, I prefer Ron DeSantis to be president, is if you're afraid of political consequences down the pike. But I don't if you're think afraid that's true. of Donald Trump coming into office and then punishing you for standing but your DeSantis preference. But DeSantis has received local endorsements. But that's, that's exactly the kind of so, political so that's pressure. Not... And that's exactly what happened in 2016 with Bernie Haley. I'm just articulating no, no, I, a warning I, 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 for you guys. I, I understand that, that there Bruce, were, but I would disagree in terms of no one having endorsed DeSantis in this particular example that there were, we're debating. There were about. national groups that, for no reason, absolutely, in terms of their ideologies, should have endorsed Hillary Clinton. Absolute no-brainers. But they all fell in line, whether it was national women's groups, whether it was national Planned uh, plan Parenthood, whether it, all down the line. On every sure. single issue, Hillary Clinton was to the right of Bernie Sanders. Hillary Clinton had had failed, had had articulated a, a less pr progressive policy mm -hmm. on and on and on down the line. But there was a kind of groupthink in a political capture, because you know if you stand up, st step out of line and are, are against the Democratic Party, it's not just an abstract punishment. It is is—the uh, DNC could and has promulgated rules to punish vendors that step out of line, that endorse insurgent candidates, have ruined political careers. Etc. And I do sure. think that what uh, we're seeing, what, why, the reason why we end up in these situations, mm -hmm. my subjective opinion, is that on both parties there's a kind of political capture that makes the public follow the lead of leadership and so, tastemakers. So is the public not smart enough to sort of decide who they want to support? I mean, is the onus not on the public to do their own research, to have enough discernment to figure out who's the best of the candidates? I don't. It's not about the public's the intelligence. I don't dismiss that the public is the is the victim of a multi-billion-dollar propaganda effort, and oh, I'm not going to sit there and say that, that you should way. just be stronger. I don't see it that uh, than the billions because of dollars I, I that are being spent to convince all you. Of, I think you're removing all responsibility from the individual. I don't agree with that at all. I, Okay, I don't think I'm removing oh, all the Oh, you absolutely are, because you're saying, well, it's a billion-dollar entity that's using, I don't know, psychological ops to sort of persuade the public to, to vote and believe one thing versus supporting, in your case, your guy, Bernie Sanders. Maybe people decided that they didn't think Senator Sanders could be elected in a national election. So I'm— is that, is that not a probability? I'm speaking from data in specifics. I'm talking about the billions of dollars that are spent in a campaign okay. cycle. You can say that those that money is being wasted and all the people who are spending that money are doing it for funsies and not to have a political that. effect. I but didn't say that. those that money works. Advertising works, political campaign ads it work. Sure, it, it works. And when you have millions of dollars in un, in earned media as a consequence of let's say Joe Biden winning a a uh, presidential race in um, a primary campaign in South Carolina mm -hmm. after 
Bernie won the first three contests, sure. and in Nevada, the media but, started but, running. But, wait but a minute. Why? The, the media started running uh, articles about how he was captured by Putin, and that's why he w won Nevada. And Chris Matthews it, no and one Talking that, Heads. No, no, no one Wait a minute. That. You might not remember it, Sherman, no because that wasn't that. your candidate, it wasn't your fight, and it wasn't your yeah, interest. Yeah, most voters don't care about that. Well, why do you think Joe Biden won in South Carolina? There's a, the Democratic Party has incredibly deep roots and very strong organizing bases in South Carolina. James Clyburn. Yeah, James Clyburn. Sixty percent of South Carolina it, 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 voters exactly. said that they voted because Jim Clyburn told them to, which Correct. validates Someone exactly they, my so, point. Thank you for so, bringing no, that no, up, no, Sir no, Michael, because no, no. that's they, exactly they, my point. Can, can I, okay, Party okay. validators mm -hmm. are leading the way on so many of these voter decisions because most people when don't you have look the time. At, when you look at focus group data on why black people voted for Biden over Bernie Sanders. Most of them will say because they believe Joe Biden had a better odds of defeating Donald That's Trump versus That's exactly Bernie what Sanders. I've been saying this whole time, though, Sherry. And I don't think that has anything to do with them being persuaded somehow by some political conglomerate with some type that's in a dark room trying to fool you the American people. You keep adding words and sentences. I said specifically that there was an electability argument that was made to okay. convince people that Hillary Clinton was more likely to beat Donald Trump. That's literally what you just said. And I, even and though what, the what polls I'm saying suggested that I think people the can arrive to that and history on their has own. demonstrated I think that. people can arrive to that opinion on their own, just like I believe Republican voters are looking at the current slate of Republican candidates and are saying they believe Donald Trump is the better option. All right. Well, good luck. Hillary Clinton lost. Uh, and we'll see what happens going forward yeah, into 2024. Well, we got to push on, I'm, I'm afraid, but we have more <laughs> Rising B right after this. UFO whistleblower David Grush seems to have started a domino effect since Grush gave testimony to Congress in August about crashed spacecraft and, quote, non-human biologics. At least 30 other whistleblowers working for the federal government or government contractors have given testimony to the Office of the Intelligence Community Inspector General, according to sources interviewed by Public. Despite the growing number of whistleblowers, the intelligence community is still fighting disclosure, according to Public Inspector General of the Intelligence Community, Thomas A. Monhelm, said that his office has not conducted any audit, inspection, and evaluation or review of alleged UAP programs within responsibility authority of the DNI that would enable a fulsome response. Author of the public substack, Michael Schellenberger, joins us now to discuss. Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, you know, this is garnering a lot of attention. We're hearing from more and more whistleblowers. Do you think this is going to lead uh, for the government, the Pentagon in particular, to be more transparent on what they actually do know and how long they've maintained this information in private? Well, I certainly hope so. I think that's the really big question. I mean, I think what's important to point out here is that, you know, right after Grush's testimony in July, a lot of people said, you know, he's one guy, um, he's relying on secondhand information. He hasn't actually touched any uh, uh, exotic materials or spacecraft. Um, but now we have uh, reports from multiple sources, including people that have had direct contact with these programs, uh, telling us that indeed many of Grush's claims were accurate, uh, including about the, the retrieved, retrieved craft around reverse engineering programs. Um, you know, I would say there's still multiple possibilities here. I uh, am agnostic myself. I do not know uh, what is going on. There is a possibility, for example, that this is a kind of social contagion, a kind of uh, 
effect of human unconscious that particularly impacts uh, military intelligence folks. It's not inconceivable. The thing that's so strange, though, about it is this intense level of secrecy, which has actually increased in recent months. So it didn't even make it into the piece. But, you know, they've been denying more freedom of information requests uh, to the federal government, to the main person that requests a guy named John Greenwald. Uh, you know that after the during the hearing, Grush said, I'll tell you where these uh, uh, retrieved craft are at specific bases or military contractors. They would not let him have a skiff or a kind of secure compartmentalized facility. Um, and then now when we, you know, our sources tell us, and some of them were uh, in the piece um, actually on the record, we're saying that we're seeing both the defense secretary and others start to kind of uh, close up and try to and try to basically oppose an amendment uh, proposed by Senate uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, which would require that the contractors and others with any potential crashed materials return them. So, you know, if it's a social contagion, if it's something or if it's just a even if it's just a, a Defense Department weapons program, there is supposed to be congressional oversight of secret weapons programs. So the level of secrecy um, that we're seeing, I think, is really um, unusual and concerning, um, include, especially or including if it's just a social contagion. Michael, can you tell us a little bit more about how we know that there are these 30 additional whistleblowers and what, if anything, we know about who they are? where they work, what kind of security access they have, and what they might have been privy to, and potentially even the nature of what they've been disclosing? Sure. And I should say that I don't have a firm count. And really, what we're able to say are dozens. Uh, these are all individuals in the government that are, or, or working for military contractors. These are all people in the know. Um, I actually had more sources on this uh, story than I had on my previous uh, story. So I feel very confident um, that that these people that are telling me this uh, believe that they're telling me the truth. Um, I also I don't think it's that surprising, really, that there's this many people. If you consider that this has been an issue that's been going on for 75 years and people have not uh, had a place to go to share this information. And so sometimes when people ask me, there's a lot of people that rightly wonder, why is this happening now? And maybe they're using this to cover up the Hunter Biden laptop or something like that, which is obviously an issue I am also concerned with. Um, part of the answer is this internal process within the federal government where they've established these special protections for whistleblowers to come forward on this issue. Um, as you know, the inspector general is the office in different federal uh, agencies that is a place where you are supposed to be able to go and not fear reprisal. The reality is often there is uh, consequences for people going to those departments, but nonetheless, it's supposed to be uh, confidential, it's supposed to be secure. Uh, you know, Sheriff Michael, when he read the, the response from the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community, a guy named Thomas A. Monheim, it was a very strange he, it, letter because he sent it to one of the Congress people that had asked about this, uh, about the whistleblowers. And Monheim said, yeah, there's no audit or uh, evaluation, making it sound like they weren't looking into this. Well, of course, we know, um, I'm 100% sure that they are looking into this. I have very strong evidence that they are looking into this. But they let he left off his letter, the word investigation. So he never said he wasn't doing an investigation. Well, that's not just a semantic point. Investigation is a whole department of his um, special office. So so you see that, I mean, that's kind of 
they're playing some games there and and you have to kind of ask you know what is it that they're covering up now sometimes i think people say well if it's a weapons program they have to keep it secret maybe that's the case but again first of all there's supposed to be congressional oversight over secret weapons programs and second of all sometimes the government actually hypes weapon programs that we don't have the most famous example of this is Ronald Reagan's Star Wars program or the Strategic Defense Initiative. They exaggerated the ability of that program to protect the United States from, from nuclear weapons coming in from Russia or other countries. So I do think there's a lot of unanswered questions still. I do think that, you know, um, America does a pretty good job with checks and balances, and we do have a process in place. We have multiple places that these guys can go. It's not just, as we mentioned in the piece, that they can go to the inspector general, but they can also go directly to Congress and any whistleblowers listening to this should know this. You can go right to Congress. And then they can also go to this DOD office, although many of the people I spoke with did not have a lot of confidence that they were doing a serious investigation. Michael, I want to go back to something you mentioned in terms of some of the critics saying, well, perhaps these are some types of, of type of weapons programs, advanced technology. I mean, right now we're sort of in this hypersonics race with China and Russia in terms of missiles, but also aircraft that can travel with Mach 5 and above. Uh, some of the critics are saying, well, we don't want our adversaries knowing that the United States is working on this type of technology. Uh, some have argued maybe we're working on anti-gravitational type of craft. We don't want individuals to know that we have that technology. What would you say to those critics who've tried to point those things out to sort of dispel uh, some of the whistleblowers and to prevent others from potentially coming out? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really legitimate argument because there there have been efforts in the past, and we note in the piece, a very famous incident where the Air Force Intelligence Service actually spread disinformation to UFO enthusiasts, um, ostensibly to cover up uh, stealth uh, weapons programs. There's also some evidence this may have occurred around the development of drones. Um, that particular case was very irresponsible because they actually drove a person, or at least they contributed to a person having a mental breakdown in convincing him that he was somehow uncovering a, uh, an alien invasion. It's a crazy episode uh, depicted in this terrific book and movie called Mirage Men. Uh, that sort of activities are not supposed to be engaged in by U.S. intelligence anymore against the American people. They're not supposed to be engaged in that sort of deception or disinformation. I think there is experimentation with different forms of propul propulsion. You know, as somebody that works on energy and climate change, obviously, if we're developing forms of propulsion that are not from combustion and do not create uh, greenhouse gases, that's massive. That would be a technology that you would want to spill out of the DOD eventually into the world because that would be a way to produce, um, that would be a way to tr have transportation, obviously, without uh, creating uh, combustion or, or or carbon carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases so obviously that would be a huge event i mean just a radical event like the invention of nuclear i have not gotten the sense from anybody i've spoken to that we have uh mastered those propulsion techniques although there was some i did speak to uh one person that did see uh one of these famous uh triangles operating on a different form of propulsion this person did not know whether it was a u.s government uh, created craft or whether it was from some other intelligence. Um, so a lot of mysteries await, but yeah, I think that's a huge question, one that we have a lot more questions about than answers. Mm -hmm. Michael, you mentioned that there were 
several avenues for whistleblowers to come forward uh, and disclose to. One of those obviously could potentially just be directly to the media. What's your understanding of the disincentives for, let's say, the 30 or so people that you identified in your article who have already um, revealed themselves to have information about um, alien life to not just come forward and tell the public directly if that information is being kept quiet by the government? Yeah, I mean, obviously, so we have seen now one case of it with David Grush, um, you know, a person who did decide to go to the public with this and went through, you know, I think what's interesting, I've dealt with now a fair number of whistleblowers. Grush uh, really followed all of the rules very carefully. Uh, not everybody is as careful about that. Um, I think many people try to, but there is some complexity there. And you're also trying to protect your place at work. But certainly going public is the end of your career. Uh, for, I think, these people, um, you know, including Grush, and so they don't want to do that. I met with uh, several people now, including in person, and I can tell you that their fear was genuine and that uh, I think it's very hard to fake the kinds of fear that I experienced. Um, I think most of us know that most most actors are pretty terrible at their jobs. Most acting is bad. It's hard to find lay people who are able to fake those kinds of emotions. So something scared them. We also did a report earlier, uh, or back in the summer, actually, um, on the same day that Grush testified in July, about a very a long history of people that report seeing UFOs or being whistleblowers on UFOs reporting death threats or other kinds of threats, including threats to have their security clearances revoked or their jobs lost or just the, the stigmatization and ostracization that came from people being ridiculed or uh, being uh, accused of being crazy or participating in a hoax. So I think there's a huge amount of fear. Um, people that um, I spoke to, I mean, it was absolutely off the record, deep background. Uh, I've taken great care never to refer to people's you know, gender identity or what agency they're at or whether they're with a contract or even with the government. And obviously, I've been trying to be as um, specific as I can to provide the details that I think are in the public's interest, but also to protect these folks who are absolutely terrified. And these are people that are ostensibly under these whistleblower protections. I mean, Michael, I think for most of our viewers, that fear that you speak of, of career suicide, considering how powerful the government is, is, is palpable for most people watching. But what, I want to get a little more into the weeds here, Mike, in terms of what these new whistleblowers are claiming and or confirming. You write, testimony has included both firsthand and secondhand reports of crash retrieval and reverse engineering programs by U.S., Russian, and Chinese governments. The testing of materials obtained from retrieved craft, active and ongoing government disinformation operations, kinetic military action with UAPs, contact and collaboration with non-human intelligence, and the successful reverse engineering of a triangular-shaped craft with unconventional propulsion. And, and that sort of gets to, Mike, what, what I was saying earlier about the type of technology that we may or may not be having. Like you just said, if we have this technology, where in the world did we get it from, even if we haven't mastered it yet? Yeah, well, so I laugh a little bit when you read that paragraph, and I hesitated <laughs> to include it in the article because it's so outrageous and absurd. And you, as any independent thinker, you have to assume the chances are as good of that being not that any of those things not being the case mm -hmm. as being the case. And so what you're dealing with here and what we're reporting and not making judgment on 
is that this is what people are telling us. And it's not, these are not, you know, people in psychotic states. Uh, these are people in very high positions of authority, in positions to know, well confirmed, uh, don't appear to have any uh, interest in sharing this, which kind of leaves you with one possibility that it's, like I mentioned, it's a social contagion, it's psychogenic in some peculiar way that affects a certain group of people. Um, you know, I could, I'm going to write an article making, kind of laying out the best case for the, a psychogenic explanation for this. Obviously, again, the biggest problem with that explanation is just the government secrecy, because if it were just uh, all in people's heads, I, you could say, or if it were just some sort of a social phenomenon, the way you get rid of that is to have greater openness and transparency, and you allow people to talk about it, and you, are, you open up the doors to the to the bases and the defense contractors, and you kind of go, look, there's nothing to see here. Or you might say, sure, of course, we've got secret um, programs, weapons programs going on, and, and everybody knows that, and, and there's just things that we, we can't reveal to you because it's better for the public not to know. Um, those aren't the behaviors that we're seeing, and mm -hmm. that's, I think, what's so odd about this. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I think what's so weird about the, the experience and what you laugh about it is that it seems like the stories that we're hearing are some of the are some of the wildest kind of conspiracy theories that we've been hearing for a really long time and you don't know what to make of it i think it's important I, I report on it because i think people have a right to know but uh it's hard not to kind of uh discount it pretty significantly obviously until we get to the bottom of this but yeah. i did also I'll, I'll end by just noting that i quoted i think maybe the most important skeptic on this issue or at least one of the most prominent skeptics a person named mick west and he said, we need to get to the bottom of this. So there's a, so ostensibly a big divide between UFO believers and UFO skeptics. But I do think that what you find is actually that the UFO skeptics want to get to the bottom of this. They want transparency. They want disclosure just as much as the believers do. Michael Schellenberger, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Don't let POTUS trip. Well, that's apparently the mission for Biden's campaign and the work up to November 2024, per an Axios report. Democrats and those close around the president are worried about the 80-year-old's fitness to make it on the trail, possibly suffering another fall that could jeopardize his re-election run. Hmm. Age isn't Biden's only concern. According to reports, former Secretary of State in 2016, presidential candidate Hillary Clinton warned Biden about a third-party candidate thwarting his re-election run. And per NBC News, which first reported the story, Clinton pulled him aside at an event at the White House and advised him to take third-party challengers seriously. Recall that in 2016, the mainstream narrative was that Clinton's hope of becoming president was dashed by the third-party candidate, Dr. Jill Stein. Meanwhile, Democratic Congressman from Minnesota Dean Phillips is considering challenging Biden. Here he is on podcast, The Warning, with host Steve Schmidt. Let's take a look. I haven't ruled it out. I think it's a steep slope, particularly in light of what I'm reading, uh, the polling, the data, and what I'm sensing in my own intuition. And I'm concerned. Uh, I'm concerned that there is no alternative. I'm concerned that something could happen between now and next November that would make the Democratic Convention in Chicago uh, an unmitigated disaster. All right, Dean Phillips. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you, I've never heard of him before. Who I had to remind myself. He's okay. a re representative from Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
I don't know if he's that, the is guy. That, is that where Mall of America is, right? <laughs> don't don't do Minnesota like that. It's a perfectly <laughs> great state. My, no, my beef that. is not I with the people that. of Minnesota no, no, or the elected representatives. The question is whether or not um, he's the answer to uh, Biden's, I think, very real problems. Yeah. Where, as we discussed in an earlier segment, most Americans don't want this matchup. Uh, most Democrats don't want him to be the nominee. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it does seem to me very odd that these discussions are happening about replacing Biden while the two candidates that have already announced yeah. and are running against him are never mentioned. As a reminder, their names are Marion Williamson and RFK Jr. RFK yeah. Jr. has pulled as high as 20 percent. Marion Williamson has uh, pulled as high as, I think, 11 percent. Um, Dean Phillips thinks he can do better. He clearly does. Yeah. I, I, Dude, I, I mean, you, I've, never heard, I've never heard of Dean before, <laughs> so, and I'm not trying to make fun of the congressman. I've never heard of him. But I will say, you know, look, um, here's someone who recognizes that the voters want a different voice, a younger voice, and he's throwing his hat into the ring, and I will applaud him for, for that, for trying to be a solution to the problem. But, Bree, this is what I thought was really interesting, though, uh, that, that Axios report, the steps that they're taking uh, in terms of, of Biden making sure he wears tennis shoes. He's working with a, a physical therapist now, fitness yeah. coach rather, to, to work on balance. They're, yeah. they're having, I think, lowered steps into Air Force One, I believe yeah. now. I mean, I applaud them for taking these measures for someone who is 80 years old. Mm-hmm. But I do wonder in the terms of voters, Will they look at this and say, if you have to do all of these things, maybe he shouldn't be president? Yes, and we're going to get into the alternate theory, alternate theory of what the Democratic Party might be up to in a second. But I just want to, before we move on, touch on this um, third-party voter point. Hillary Clinton giving people advice uh, in this particular context, I got to say, is a little triggering. Remember, she as far as I know, has never taken accountability for the role her own campaign played in her loss. As far as I remember, she's just been talking about how Russians hacked the election um, and how the uh, emails Mm -hmm. damned her. Um, It wasn't that she didn't campaign in the Midwest. Um, It wasn't that somehow she lost 88,000 voters, black voters in Wisconsin, who came out and voted in 2012. But but not only declined to vote for her in 2016, the margin of her loss in that state, if I'm remembering this correctly, um, was uh, smaller than the number of people who came out and voted that year in 2016, but left the top of the ticket blank because they had such personal distaste for for Hillary Clinton as a candidate. So, you know, that is why so many of us on the left think it's very rich that she blames uh, third-party voters. Everybody else There were a herself. lot of different pools of voters yeah, that she could yeah. have pulled, pulled from. But, Brie, why do you think it is, though, so difficult for Hillary Clinton to take responsibility for her losses? I mean, this, you know, there are some people on, on the right who believe the previous election was stolen. I don't share that belief. And to me, this is in the same vein as Donald Trump not taking responsibilities for the faults, to be quite honest, on his campaign. 
well, some I do of those think that mishaps. They're different insofar as, as far as we know, Hillary Clinton didn't engage in a conspiracy across seven states to get. No, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, no, Bri, I'm not, no, no, I'm not. I'm not comparing. I'm not comparing I mean, illegalities. But what I'm saying is, she's still stuck on the past, just like Donald Trump is still stuck on the sure, past. Sure, but I don't think that's that, my point. But Donald Trump, I, I'm not upset with Trump for feeling like he was treated unfairly in the election, or thinking that it was the election was stolen from him because mm -hmm. the media was un, uh, biased against him or anything like that. I think those are perfectly legitimate things to say. My quibble with Donald Trump is only insofar as that he allegedly engaged in a scheme with co-conspirators to actually uh, submit a false slate of electors that uh, undermined the Democratic choice made by millions of voters across the country. But in terms of rhetorically, yeah, neither has taken move accountability. On. People, move on, Hillary. No yeah. one wants to hear from Hillary or her husband, Bill Clinton, anymore. And this, and this third party question, I think, is interesting because if you do want to, what does it mean from Hillary Clinton's perspective to take third-party candidates seriously? What would it mean for her to have taken Jill Stein seriously? There is a model of this that is perhaps apocryphal, that back in 2000, uh, Ralph Nader yeah. came to the Democratic Party, came to Al Gore and said, here is a number of my concerns. If you agree to concede to some of these points, if you adopt some of these issues as part of your platform, by the way, these are issues that a majority of the Democratic Party want to see enacted, yeah, sure. and that would actually help you constructively win this election, then I'll drop out of the race. The Democratic Party never seems to want to address third-party claims by actually absorbing some of their mm -hmm. agenda. Mm -hmm. They just say, damn you, you're a spoiler. Yeah. They try to use threats and vote blue no matter who and the threats of what you know a, a Republican candidacy would mean. You know what's interesting to, to me people. In, in that regard? I think you, you're making a very salient point. And you said this, I think, yesterday, Bree, in terms of the libertarians, Tea Party folks, all of these sort of other external groups that are still under the Republican umbrella, the overall GOP will, for the most part, embrace them because they just want to win. I think the only critique overall in terms of former President Trump is to just move on and talk about the issues of today and talk about the future, not so much about the past. But it does appear to me that Hillary Clinton not only is uniquely focused on the past, but I would argue if she had her choice, would probably want the process to not even allow third-party Democratic-leaning candidates to be able to run at all, if she could have it that right. way. Right. Well, that's not—we don't have to deal in hypotheticals there. The Democratic Party has engaged in ferocious efforts, stronger efforts than any other group in the United States of America, to kick third parties off the ballot. There was a really promising candidate, a veteran named Matthew Ho, that was running for Senate in North Carolina. He got the requisite ballots um, that he needed—sorry, uh, signatures that he needed mm -hmm. to get on the ballot. The Democratic Party and a Clinton lawyer, uh, actually, spent um, an enormous amount of money and energy to try to challenge uh, his ballot access but why? Uh, in court. Really, like, I've never understood. What's, because, why does that party apparatus continue to do that? That t the only way to legally and democratically mm -hmm. confront the risks or the challenges presented by a third-party run is to move to the left, is to listen to those third parties and to absorb the parts of the agenda. But is that there the an ideological difference from someone like a center left individual like Clinton versus more progressives? Is that why there's such discord between the camps? Do they just purely dislike them because of what they want to do to the political apparatus, generally speaking? Like, I don't understand. Yes, there's a great deal of ideological difference, okay. Michael. Oh, okay. I'm not a, a Democrat, so I'm not sure. No, there's a, a significant—I am also not a Democrat. 
Well, I'm not on the left either. Because there's a significant degree of ideological <laughs> difference. Point. Um, but let's let's move on because this is the this is really the juicy uh, part of the story yeah, here. Yeah. So as many people might be aware, uh, Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis are going to be uh, squaring off in a debate. <laughs> You, you might think you missed the Gavin Newsom uh, presidential race announcement. Mm -hmm. You did not. Um, this debate has been, uh, it's going to be on Fox News. Uh, it's going to be in November in Battleground State, yeah. Georgia. Yep. Um, Fox News has described it as a red versus blue state debate. I guess they can't call it a presidential debate, since, they again, can't. one of these guys is not a, an announced candidate. Both men have been fiercely critical of each other, with Newsom tearing into DeSantis' anti-COVID lockdown stance and DeSantis routinely blasting the liberal leader of California. This is interesting because Newsom has previously said he will not challenge President Biden, but the debate is fueling speculation that he might make a run for the president, if not in 2024, then in the future. Though while Biden's underwater poll numbers are at the forefront of the current news cycle, the Washington Post argues, well, you know, look, this is interesting to me. And I think that particular piece from the Washington Post, people should pay a lot of attention to. I'm not certain, Bree, that Newsom is thinking of, like for 2028. No, nope. I, I think this is a test for if Biden, if, if it doesn't work out for <laughs> Biden, I am your guy, Democratic Party. So here's the theory that I uh, saw floated. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> that they're going to get rid of Kamala Harris. Robbie swears that no it's going to be so hard to get rid of Kamala Harris. I, I can't think of something easier in the world than finding a place to park one of the most unpopular, nobody cares about her, nothing politicians mm -hmm. in American history. And so I saw this theory floated that because Newsom is in this bit of a pickle uh, where he has to appoint a re replacement for Feinstein, yeah. there are announced candidates and he feels like he has, he can't get in the mix and mm -hmm. put his finger mm -hmm. on the scale. He has said that he's going to appoint a black, black woman, woman yeah. to replace Barbara Biden. Lee. Barbara Lee is running, yeah. but she's running with uh, uh, Katie Porter and uh, another candidate. And it, it feels as though he can't get in the mix of that. However, if Kamala Harris needed to be parked someplace, she's the uh, black woman du jour. Send her back to the Senate to oh. temporarily fill the position. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, that opens up a vacancy in the VP spot. Slide but Gavin who? Newsom in there, and then he never even has to run. Slide Gavin Newsom in there. Uh, Joe Biden is ailing. He's sick. He steps aside. He, you know, he's incapacitated. Mm -hmm. And then we have a built-in. But, but, but Bree, can I ask candidate. you this question? I yeah. mean, would you? Fa how would you factor in potential discontent? with black women voters. Nobody cares. You don't think so? First of all, the Democratic Party could not care less about, about black women voters, and I don't know how much more evidence there needs to be about But would you be worried about, about them not no, turning out in because high numbers? guess who is black women? You did this. Congratulations. Guess who is the most loyal, Well, the most dedicated, most woman, vote blue yeah. no matter who? Yeah. You black tell woman. them they ain't black and slap them in the face and they'll still yeah. not only queue up and vote for you, but get 10 of their neighbors to come with you? Black women. And that's why black women, I'm like, I don't like that this is true, but this is the hard, cold reality, get zero respect in a political context. You know who gets courted? Groups that sometimes don't vote for Democrats, like Latino voters. Yeah, I mean, Bree, I think that's a good point, but I am almost certain 
that the White House is going to would have to factor in. If we were to replace Kamala Harris, what are the implications for our most loyal voting bloc? Do you know a single black woman who wouldn't vote to stop Trump because Kamala Harris was no longer the president, uh, the no, vice president? No. Honestly, and there we no. go. <laughs> no, I, I have to be honest about that. No, I, I don't. I mean, that's a, there you go. That's a fair point. I mean, you do know but, one because you're sitting at a table well, with her. <laughs> I got to tell you, Bree. I mean, that would talk about unprecedented. Yeah. But but again, why else would Newsom go all the way to Georgia to debate with, with Ron DeSantis, who will not become the nominee this time around, I think is going to run again in 2028, unless, and, and I tweeted something about this a few days ago, I said this is an opportunity for Newsom to articulate to the Democratic Party that he is a better messenger on what he would purport are Democratic successes than Joe Biden. He looks good. He's a charismatic guy. He's given several, multiple interviews on Fox News. I've never seen him I mean, trip, physically I, no, or I, rhetorically. So, I mean, I, I just think that there, I think he's a candidate that would be palatable for a lot of mainstream Democrats who do want, we talked about this yesterday, mm -hmm. based on the numbers, they want someone else. But if he does this, what does the White House do? I mean, do they say, what are you doing, Gavin? Do they not say anything? I don't think any of this would be happening without White House uh, approval. No way, Brie. Really? Yeah. I don't think that Gavin Newsom is not ruining alliances that he has well, in support that he smart. needs going forward yeah. over a stunt debate in Georgia. There's nothing that is happening right now that is not Brie, what sanctioned. the hell is going on here? What, what, I think what we're all gonna going to find out here? very soon. <laughs> very, very soon. All right. We'll have more, more rising for you right after this. A new poll released by Morning Consult reveals voters are not only losing confidence in Joe Biden, but their faith in the Democratic Party as a whole has been shaken. More specifically, the survey found that voters view the Democratic Party as more ideologically extreme than the GOP by nine percentage points. Here to elaborate on these revelations is Cameron Easley, Morning Consult's lead analyst for U.S. politics. Cameron, welcome to the program. So, Cameron, I just have one big question after reading this. Why? Why are more Americans, why do they view Democrats as more extreme than Republicans? Because this was really circulating across X, formerly Twitter, and a lot of the responses from many of the users were, there's no way this is possible. Well, whenever Joe Biden was, was campaigning in, in the 2020 presidential election and after he won, you know, coming into office, uh, you know, he made no secret of his, of his intentions to you know, govern in the style of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and, you know, bring the return of uh, big government uh, back to Washington. And, you know, Democrats, while they haven't gotten everything that they that they wanted in the past few years, especially when they had full control of, of Congress, uh, they have spent quite heavily to provide, you know, tangible benefits to, to Americans. So I, I think in terms of the perception uh, of Democrats' leftward drift ideologically, ideologically under Biden, you know, it might be as simple as a case of, of, of voters believing what, what Democrats have been telling them. How is the question framed and were specific policies or issues raised um, when asking the question? Do we have any sense of what voters are thinking about when they characterize the, Democrat, the, the Democrats as extreme? Are they really talking about the, some of the um, social spending during COVID, like having child poverty? Is that the kind of extreme action that voters are attributing to the Democratic Party? So this is a very generally phrased question that we've been tracking every year, going back to when we started this annual State of the Party survey in 2016. So we've got about eight years of, of data there. 
And the question just asks, you know, whether the Democratic Party is too liberal, about as liberal as it should be, or, or not liberal enough. On the other side of the aisle, we ask if, you know, the Republican Party is too conservative, about as conservative as it should be, or not, or cons not conservative enough. So I think it's important to note that we are talking about a traditional left-right ideological spectrum through which we're we're viewing this question. You know, when you, when you look at kind of the the two-axis ideological question, there is a, a vertical axis that goes along with the the left, liberal, right, conservative axis, and that is, you know, at one end you have authoritarian, and at the other end you have libertarian. Now, that's not something that, you know, the layman necessarily is going to understand as well. And it's much more challenging to kind of test opinions in that way. So we've seen a lot of pushback, you know, from, from Democrats online and framing these kind of responses in the context of January 6th and, you know, what, what many would see as, as Trump's authoritarian impulses. I think it's important to note that that, that might not be captured here uh, in the way that, that some might think at first glance. Cameron, let me ask you this question. Uh, what impact do you believe some of the social, cultural debates that we're having in the country in terms of gender? Uh, I think many on the right have really sort of brought some of these issues to the forefront. What impact do you believe this is currently having on the way people view both parties? Uh, I don't think you can ignore it. It's it's definitely having something of, of an impact. You know, we saw a pretty large backlash uh, to the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, I think, was a was a huge moment. And, you know, I think we we saw a lot of groups uh, kind of falling, a lot of groups on the left kind of tagging on to, to that line and, and, and suffering some some blowback because of it. Uh, I think, you know, Republicans kind of looked at that situation, saw that they were able to, to work with it and just have kind of tried to continue to, to push culture as, as much as, as possible since then. I do think there is a, a genuine question about which cultural issues will, will be particularly salient in, in next year's election. You know, going into 2022, I think in a lot of cases, people underrated the impact that the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe v. Wade was going to happen on, on the feeling of, of cultural politics in our country. And I also think, you know, people underestimated somewhat how, how January 6th would. So I do think it, it's possible that, it's certainly possible that, you know, Democrats have some weak points on cultural issues going into 2024. But I, I do think there's a real question about, about whether that will be the, the biggest cultural talking point. Next Cameron, year. you mentioned Black Lives Matter. Can you name a Democratic candidate who ran on Black Lives Matter and who lost and whose loss can be attributed to their standing well, by that slope, that uh, movement? That's a really good question, Brianna. And I, I think, honestly, the answer to that, that question is, is no. Mm -hmm. And the, the interesting part there is, is how stances by, you know, certain advocacy groups um, translated pretty, pretty neatly for some voters onto candidates who, who actually, you know, took pains to, to distance themselves. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would use a little less, a little less passive voice there. I think there was a very much a campaign spearheaded by the Democratic Party 
to distance itself preemptively from Black Lives Matter, even when it was, in fact, very popular and there were 20 million Americans who took to the street to protest the injustice of unauthorized police killings, extrajudicial killings of American citizens. But Joe Biden started pivoting hard when he became the nominee and arguing that we needed to fund the police harder, arguing specifically to the American people that they risked Trump being president again if they continued to support the Black Lives Matter movement. And I frankly think that that is very attributable to the distancing that many Americans put between themselves and a movement that they organically supported. Um, they felt like it was a trade-off, Donald Trump or Black Lives Matter. Don, uh, Biden positioned it as that kind of a trade-off, and we saw that consequently. I wanted to ask you if, a little bit about some of the other sort of extreme actions that are being taken right now by the Republican Party. In the news uh, currently is the fact that as part of these debt ceiling negotiations, uh, House Republicans are advocating to cut Title IX by nearly 80 percent. Um, that is the single program that provides funding for low-income schools, known as Title I education grants. Does a poll like this or any other polls that you've been doing capture public opinion about actions like that one? Well, I think it's very important to understand and, and realize how little much of the public knows about what, what goes on in the halls of Capitol Hill, right. uh, even what members of Congress are staging news conferences uh, to promote. We have some survey findings out just this morning uh, on what voters know of about the potential for a government shutdown later today, excuse me, later this week, and what what is out there that is kind of contributing to that. And so, you know, we asked voters, uh, based on what you know, uh, do you believe that we're at, we're at risk of a, of a shutdown later this week because Republicans are unable to come to an agreement with other Republicans, because Democrats are able to unable to come to an agreement with other Democrats, or because Republicans and Democrats are unable to come to an agreement with each other. And by a more than two to one margin, uh, voters believe that it's because Republicans and Democrats are at disagreement, not that Republicans are, are at disagreement with, with their own party. So I think that tells you a lot about what the, the people who are really closely tracking these events uh, are, are thinking about these situations and, and how, they, how they view how the public might respond to them versus what the public itself is actually tracking and, and has, a, has an informed opinion on. Mm. Cameron, the Biden White House would point to several things, such as the CHIPS Act uh, and other major pieces of legislation as success points for the president, uh, things that the president could potentially run on. Yet, despite those things, and I think the president recently said, I'm, I'm delivering all my promises to the American people, yet the American people still appear to believe that Democrats are more extreme than Republicans. How do you think that will translate, however, in terms of a rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump? Like, like does that belief of extremism of one side correlates to them voting for the other side or not necessarily? Well. I think it's important to remember that views of extremism are not going to always be easily captured mm -hmm. uh, in, in survey data, especially when it when it depend especially depending on, on what kind of extremism we're talking about. You know, we can look at the survey data all we want, but we also need to remember to look at the election results themselves. Uh, the polling heading into the 2020 midterms did not look good for Joe Biden. It did not look good for the Democratic Party. Pretty much the only thing that, that it looked like they had going for them 
from a political perspective, was the backlash to the the abortion decision by by the Supreme Court. But you know, when it came time in competitive races and toss up districts, uh, what we saw was Democrats were actually quite effective yeah. in a in a persuasion message. And, yeah. and looking toward twenty twenty four, if Donald Trump is the nominee. That's that's obviously the way that that Democrats are, are going to try to take the conversation, make it about democracy, to make it about freedom of, of personal freedom of choice, uh, and you know basically just try to do this the same thing that that worked in 2020 and 2024. Thank you so much for joining us, Cameron. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Cameron. In a recent sit-down with MSNBC's Rachel Maddow, former White House aide and assistant to former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows during the Trump administration, Cassidy Hutchinson, called on Republicans to take an immediate stand against Donald Trump. I do not believe that Mr. Trump is a strong Republican, but in this next election cycle, it's, in my opinion, it's the make-or-break moment for the Republican Party. Now is the time if these politicians, these men and some women that are currently in Congress want to make the break and want to take the stand, they have to do it now. You, we can't wait any longer for them to do it. I don't know why they're so so willing to support him. Um, I think it's extremely disappointing and it is not a hard issue to take. It's We're talking about a man who at the very essence of his being almost destroyed democracy in one day and he wants to do it again. He wants to run for president to do it again. He's been indicted four times since January 6th. I would not have a clear conscience and be able to sleep at night if I were a Republican in Congress that supported Donald Trump. Hutchison also responded to Mark Meadows' comments on her new book in which she paints a picture of her experience in the Trump White House. Not sort of just vaguely casting aspersions at you, so most of the statement, um, but then saying much of her claims in this book about Mr. Meadows are otherwise um, are filled with half-truths, falsehoods, and purposefully omitting context to sell books. I would encourage him to go testify under oath if he thinks that what is in the book and what I have testified to under oath, which is consistent with, with what is in the book, he can go testify under oath if he has strong feelings about that. Were you disappointed that the Justice Department elected not to prosecute him for contempt of Congress when he ignored the congressional subpoena that you responded to from the January 6th investigation? I'll leave it to Mr. Meadows and his team to respond to that. What I will say is I hope that Mark is now doing the right thing. What I define as the right thing, which is coming forth and honoring your oath that you swore to, prevent, to protect your country. Former President Trump posted a scathing criticism of the media on Truth Social this weekend, writing, quote, they are almost all dishonest and corrupt. But Comcast, with its one-sided and vicious coverage by NBC News, and in particular MSNBC, often incorrectly referred to as MSNDC Democrat National Committee, should be investigated for its country-threatening treason. Later in that post, he wrote, they are a true threat to democracy and are, in fact, the enemy of the people. You know, this is the stuff that people don't like about Donald Trump, Bree. This stuff? It's, it's this stuff. <laughs> it's like, man, you, you're, you're, you're leading for a major party in the country. You have an opportunity to talk about the economy, talk about immigration, 
talk about this proxy war with, with Russia, talk about China's aggression militarily and economically across the globe, including our own uh, hemisphere. But instead, he's on Truth Social, again, I said this earlier, still stuck on the 2020 election. Move on. People don't care about that anymore. Well, I mean, some portion of the public obviously um, does care about it. They have been listening to him for, you know, three years now, saying that the election was stolen. This and doesn't not, win elections, Bree. And not only that. I mean, I do think a part of why he has a, fat, a passionate fan base is because he has been successfully able to orient himself as the victim of a broad government conspiracy and a weaponized Department of Justice to indict him four times, to impeach him twice. And there is a multi-billion dollar news industry, half of which um, in, you know, profits from relishing his failures, right. rightly or wrongly. Like, sure. that, all of that is true. So, yeah. you know, many people are invested and feel very defensive of him. I remember there was this discussion when he first announced as to whether or not his campaign had the energy that it once did. Yeah. And then very soon after his announcement and all of the prognosticators saying, oh, you know, he lost his riz, then the first documents case happened, the, the raid on Mar-a-Lago happened, yeah. and it seemed like everybody was back to defending Trump. Trump. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I do think that he gets something out of it. No, no, I don't, Bree, I don't, I don't disagree with anything you said in terms of many folks in the media not being fans of Trump. I don't disagree with how that is interpreted and viewed by many of his supporters and even many uh, Republicans who are somewhat critical of him. I don't disagree in how beneficial these countless indictments have been. I've argued uh, for a while now that I think indictment fatigue has set in, which is why I think you've yeah. seen the numbers shift so much yeah. in his favor despite everything. But my point is you cannot win a federal election for the presidency by winning eight battleground states with Republican voters alone. Elections, I've won, worked on three presidential campaigns. It has always been about addition sure. and not subtraction. And my point simply as a strategist that's helped elect a whole lot of Republicans across the country, we need to figure out what it's going to take to turn out some of those voters who decided not to vote for Donald Trump in 2020. And I don't think talking about the past helps. I think talking about things where Trump was successful, such as economics, is where he does better with some of those particular voters. So given that there are these ongoing indictments, specifically the Georgia indictment, and you know Cassidy, people like Cassidy Hutchinson yeah, yeah. talking to the public about her experience in the Trump White House, you know, on some level, it does seem unavoidable for him not to respond in some ways to the accusations that are being made. So, sure. you know, I, I am not as much in this world. What is your sense of Cassidy Hutchinson, her choice now to talk to MSNBC? I do know that so many conservatives uh, have over and over again, when people have spoken against Donald Trump in any context, sure. just thrown the whole baby out with the bathwater because they say at this point, if you go against Trump, even if you do it on Fox News, no matter where you do yeah. it, it basically means that you're not worth talking to anymore. Yeah. No matter yeah, how I, many Republicans defect, it's never enough to change and I, and I don't necessarily agree with that merely because someone criticizes Donald Trump. I mean, people should be able to be critical of anybody in the Republican Party. I mean, it's ridiculous to me that everybody has to believe, like, groupthink. That, mm -hmm. That's crazy. That's something that conservatives purport, at least traditionally, to not be about, to not believe in. We're supposed to be all about individualism and, and allowing individuals in our camp to form their own ideals. And so I think you should be able to be critical of someone and still maintain your conservative gravitas. But I will say this in terms of uh, Ms. Hutchinson. 
I believe what she's probably saying is true because she testified under oath. So I'm going to believe that she is telling the truth mm. based upon that. Otherwise, there are some legal things that she would have to face if not. With that said, though, Bree, I don't think it's unfair for people to, at a minimum, question, why now? If, if these things were really bad, they were really terrible, why did you stay? Why not quit and raise the alarm? Now, even if you were afraid to say anything publicly, why not quit and then anonymously say something? I mean, I'll, I'll think about uh, Miles Taylor, who, who wrote the, the book, I think it was titled Anonymous. He was within the administration, wrote the book. He was talking with various journalists, telling them what was going on. Now, he didn't publicly come out until way after the fact because he was afraid of retribution because he was still within his position. But at least he had a, a, enough courage to go that far. She stayed. I, I was reading an article from, I think, a couple years ago. She was campaigning with Trump in September of 2020. There was a, a picture of her and Kaylee McEnany dancing a YMCA, the song. And so it's like these things are so terrible, yet you were acting as if everything was okay. And then after the fact, after the house is nearly burned to the ground, you come out and say, oh, wait a minute, guys, let me tell you how bad it was. Now, again, I'm not saying that she shouldn't give, get some type of credit for telling the truth from what she saw. I just ask, why now? And people say, well, she was young. She was young. She I was also young. worked for Trump. I was 26 years old. Cassidy is only like a year or two younger than I am. That didn't stop me from being critical about the things that I disliked about the former president. I said, look, I am a conservative. But there are also some things in terms of his behavior that I would not stand for. And whether you like it or not, that's your opinion. She could have done those things, and she chose not to. So to me, I respect her for what she's doing now, but I'm not certain if I'm willing to applaud her as some type of hero. Well, I to don't, me. I, I don't know that one needs to think that she's a hero. But many are uh, calling her that. Well, you're free to disagree with those people. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah. And yeah. I do. I, my question is whether or not she's saying truthful things um, that are relevant to the indictment that her boss is implicated in. Yeah, I don't think it's going to matter in terms um, of the election. Well, let's not just jump to the election because there is an, an issue of legal culpability, ethical culpability on the table things. here. Right, and I'm considering both of them. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I want to talk about legal culpability and ethical culpability. That's sure. both of which Cassidy Hutchinson is speaking to right now. And I suspect that if, I, I don't remember if she's been asked why now, I'm, she probably has. But the nature of her critiques mm -hmm. have been about what happened on 1-6. Mm -hmm. So it is very plausible. I obviously disagree with working for Donald Trump at any point, ethically, morally. Sure. But I can also appreciate that it's a, it's a, rational position to share his policies, to like him, to want to work for him, mm -hmm. but for a line to be drawn at trying to steal an election. And I think that that's what many of the people who've come forward have spoken to, that as much as they might have disagreed here or there with the policy, the thing that has caused, have caused them to break ranks is ultimately that the actions leading up to 1-6 and 1-6 itself So some illegal stuff is okay so... and not the really terrible illegal well, stuff. Well, what illegal stuff? I mean, because in her book, she doesn't just talk about January 6th. I mean, I've read some excerpts. She just talks about a lot of different things she saw even before January what 6th. What other kinds of things? I mean, Mark Meadows. I mean, there are other things that with Trump's behavior when they were traveling in different places. I don't remember all the sp illegal? specifics. I mean, illegal but... like trying to steal an election illegal? No, that, that's or not just... what I'm saying. What I'm saying, Bree, is... There were certain behaviors that she witnessed that supersede January 6th. Other things before that, well, that I'm terrible moment. I'm curious about what kind of things. And I'm saying, things. why wait until just then? Well, see, I don't know the nature of these things. You're just saying I mean, things, but they're likely 
not as serious as stealing an election. No, no, and that's why I just said some things are okay, but the really terrible things, okay, I gotta say something now. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that that's crazy. I, I, no, I, I, mean, I think we live in Washington and most people don't, frankly, like they take jobs in politics not because they love the yeah, principle. I, I'm not gonna and work for someone they, who's committing even soft illegal crimes. Like, I'm not doing that. I, I, I would quit. And they are, they tether themselves to successful campaigns and Donald Trump was the president of the United States of America and they need jobs. So do I think that that's moral? No, that's why I, I took a job with the Bernie Sanders campaign because I passionately believe in 99.9% .9 of what he believes in, but I don't consider myself this person who works in politics and never want to work for another campaign again. But I'm also not going to be naive about the world that we live in and there are many people who who need jobs, who were, she's born no, in 1996. She, she I mean, look, it's one <laughs> thing to say, I'm taking this job because I have a unique set of skills and I'm going to a certain department because I believe with my skill set, I can sort of help usher, I don't know, a new era within this particular department. That's one thing. She was uniquely unqualified for the position that she had. So, I mean, I, I'm not necessarily certain why she would have presumed that taking this, I don't know. That's even maybe more I'm being of a reason to want to hold on to your job maybe, maybe if you're I'm not being, very look, experienced maybe I'm, maybe I'm and can't too, get a new one. Maybe I'm being too critical of her. I, I applaud well, her Well, I don't know why we're talking about now, her. We should be but, talking about her testimony, whether it's accurate, whether or not it is going to lead to Trump going to jail. Yeah, but all of her interviews are about her book and about Rudy Giuliani. What's your book about? Mark Meadows burning right. papers and smelling <laughs> a co a like a bonfire. A co-conspirator in the alleged crime of Donald Trump uh, stealing, conspiring to steal an election. So that's, I mean... You can say what you want about her, but that ultimately feels like a lot of pomp and, dis and, and, and circumstance and distraction from no, her saying some so. inconvenient things to Donald Trump right now. No, and I'm that's why that. he's no, going no, off no, on no, truth no, no. social. I'm not going to let you get away with that. I, I don't think from my position it's inconvenience. My point is, it's not why, about from why, your why, why? I literally wait, referenced Donald but, but Trump. But why wait until now? There are other people who said things immediately after. Many other people. I reference Miles Taylor as a great example. Immediately, Miles so took action. Those things didn't bother her. Why? Well, that's my point. They didn't bother yeah, her. She I, was okay I, I, with I it. I get your point, and I'm saying that like you aren't the same person. You don't get to decide what Cassidy Hutchinson is upset with. Well, but I can get I, to decide about her character, Sher, though, Michael, based I, on her I actions. I can sit here and say it was unconscionable for you to have ever worked for Donald Trump. You so can what, say tech, that. what standing do you have? But I'm not interested in saying that. My job is not to weigh in on people's morals. My, you're asking if she can be credible mm -hmm. because she only came forward when she did. Mm -hmm. I'm saying obviously because obviously her line isn't my line, your line isn't my line. Obviously, I'm not here to assess people's what? lines. Obviously what? Obviously, it can be the case that someone's tipping point is the very serious issue of stealing an election, and that to me seems like and, a very and, legitimate and to reason me, and to, to come me, forward. I am making the point that if such an individual can bypass a whole host of other things then I, at a minimum, am able to question one's moral and ethical boundaries, at a minimum. But not... <laughs> at a minimum. But not Donald Trump's enough to uh, decline I, to, vote, I, to work but for But I him. didn't say that, though, did I? Because what I did say that some individuals can have a certain set of skill sets and then go and work for someone because they believe that they can be an asset, which is why I decided to go to HUD to work for Dr. Carson, to be an asset to HUD, because I believe housing impacts a lot of people. Those are two different things. And, and Cassidy Hutchinson had no interest in she having employment. She was uniquely unqualified well, for the position. That's a what do you mean it's subjective? Are you okay, kidding me? I don't, I'm, I subjective? could not care less about oh, Cassidy Come Hutchinson's on. hearts and minds. The that's question that Donald Trump and everyone's going to have to contend with is whether or not her testimony uh, helps to prove the government to prove its case in well, the Well, it, presumably it does, right? I mean, according to some of the yeah, interviews, that's she's the, met that's with the only issue. Over and over so, but it's not the only issue for, for the American people, I, I would argue. All right. All right, we have to move on. More rising for you right after this.
today marks one year since underwater explosions damaged and disabled the Nord Stream pipelines, the gas pipelines that, of course, were built from Russia to Germany under the Baltic Sea to provide Western Europe with Russian natural gas. Over the past year, official investigations of the blast have led to many different theories, explanations, and possible answers coming forth about what actually happened. And the billion, multi-billion dollar question still remains who done it. According to the Washington Post, the rupture was quickly denounced by the West as an act of sabotage. United States and European officials initially blamed Russia, but questions emerged over Ukraine's responsibility because it had reportedly, quote, opposed the Kremlin-backed pipelines. Moscow and Kyiv have both denied any part in the attack. German investigators published a report last month showing that all signs point to Kyiv as culprit. But in February, American journalist Seymour Hirsch, who has been interviewed here on Rising, alleged in an article that United States Navy divers had placed explosives on the two pipelines and were later ordered to blow them up because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In a new article from today, Seymour Hirsch makes the case that it has been a year of lying since the Nord Stream explosion, arguing that the Biden administration has acknowledged neither its responsibility for the pipeline bombing nor the purpose of the sabotage. The Biden administration has denied the allegations lobbied by Hirsch. The question of who was behind the blast remains. Yeah, I, I do think that if we put aside— I think aside, probably right. —that Americans did it? Yeah, yeah I mean, because— we were talking about this during a break. I mean, the capabilities to do something like that, to dive that deep, you're talking about EOD teams that are more than likely going to be a part of SOCOM units, those are special operation groups. They're very, very small. I've done a lot of training with SOCOM guys. You're talking about probably 20, 30 people. Most countries, Bree, don't have those capabilities. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's Ukraine. Maybe Russia, but well, more than I, likely I mean, I do think that was part of Hirsch's argument that the specialized training um, required to do something like this is limited mm -hmm. and that there was, he, he was very detailed in his reporting about a group of divers that I believe trained in the Caribbean. Um, and he talked about a couple of other countries, I think, that had the technical capacity, yeah. if I recall correctly, Denmark. And I don't think it being kind of directed by Ukraine precludes there being individuals who actually you know, place the bombs sure, sure. that were trained in various places or by various countries where various other foreign nationals. Yeah. I mean, the last report that I remember us covering here from the New York Times pointed to um, unaffiliated foreign nationals, which seemed potentially huh. plausible, but also convenient insofar as if it's just individuals who are unaffiliated with any, you know, country's political which arm, is smart. then no one's Responsible. Yeah, because our government, we do that all the time. I mean, that's the whole point of mercenaries. Um, that, that was the whole point uh, during the first or well, the second Iraq war. I think we hired, was it Blackstone or Bla Blackrock? Whatever the group was of mercenaries. Betsy DeVos's brother started the company. But we hired them because there are rules that milita the military can't conduct themselves in. The CIA, they have international rules that prohibit them from uh, partaking in certain types of behavior, even special operations units have rules. However, you can train people and call them in when you need certain jobs done, mm -hmm. and the U.S. can say, we don't know how or why this happened. Yeah. Our hands are clean. Well, the people over at the Quincy Institute uh, wrote in uh, their Responsible Statecraft um, uh, online publication article today about how, in some ways, the biggest mystery is that we just simply don't know more even yeah. a year out. Um, they, you know, they, they, they quote, um, 
They say, quote, it seems very strange that NATO governments with their massive intelligent capabilities, particularly Washington's global reach, seem unable to get to the bottom of the, this. That's a quote from Jacobin reporter Branko Marchetich. We've talked to him on the show and on my own show. He says, but even stranger still is the seeming lack of interest and discussion from these countries, various media establishments and politicians about an attack that destroyed a major piece of a NATO ally's infrastructure. And of course, part of what was so suspicious was that despite their initially being um, accusations that Russia was responsible, when you looked at the motive structure for the attack, mm -hmm. it seemed evident that the West stood to gain. Of course. Germany had an incentive to not want to escalate with Russia, to de-escalate and to not have a direct conflict, because it stood to I don't want to say profit, but to, to benefit enormously from this Russian uh, from this Russian gas supply. Yeah. They had invested heavily I mean, in the building like of this build the pipeline. pipeline. That's had, right. That's it it right. was just mm -hmm. finished. <laughs> they had just like, done right it. Before the invasion, right? Right. Yeah, and um, Biden, of course, and we played many clips of this, had signaled repeatedly uh, when asked, well, what if the pipeline comes on online? Well, it won't happen. We'll take care of it. We have ways. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. <laughs> yeah, don't yeah, quote me directly. But we have ways of, of doing this. Slip a tongue, you think? And then, lo and behold, you get this. So to the extent that one of our largest European allies might have had some hesitation about backing us full, backing the United States full-throatedly in its proxy war with Russia yeah. and no longer have the conflict of interest once this uh, pipeline was blown up. Still, despite all of the incentive structures that we just described— mm -hmm. The media, the Western media and the media in a lot of these uh, European countries continue to point to Russia until it became no longer plausible for them to support that lie. And even they had to admit that there was absolutely no evidence that it was Russia. And then we had the story, I guess it was earlier this year, of a boat that had been found on the shores, I think, of Ukraine that had trace amounts of explosives on it, but seemed to be almost like, well, I shouldn't say that. There were, there were, it seemed a little too convenient. Mm -hmm. The boat didn't seem quite large enough to hold the volume of explosives necessary to actually carry out the job. It felt almost to some people reporting on it like a plant of sorts yeah, yeah. to be able to, again, yeah. just point over there and not ask questions about it. But I wonder if the media ignoring this is purposeful or if it's just because they don't believe they have the capabilities of really understanding this. I mean, again, as I stated, and I wish we could have brought on a, a, a military expert to really unpack this. I mean, you're talking about very, very unique skills. I mean, I, I don't know if any of their viewers have ever served in the military, but those EOD teams are highly specialized. You're talking years and years of ridiculous training, and only, I think, two parts of the country where we even conduct those types of training mechanisms. So I wonder if the media ignoring it is because they just don't care or, wow, we don't, we've never encountered something like this. How do we even properly cover this? Um, I perhaps cynically believe it's because, not that they don't care, but that they are disinterested mm. and dissuaded from pursuing a story that makes uh, America and or its allies look bad. Yeah. And I think that there is a tendency to um, report information from the intelligence agencies as though it is fact, instead of using it as evidence that they didn't then have to do subsequent reporting on, mm -hmm. the same way that the media often just reports police statements as fact, as opposed to it just being one statement from somebody involved in an yeah. incident that needs to be reported yeah. on. And I think that's how you got, just conveniently, all of the most um, 
the theories that were most flattering to the state published first. <laughs> of course. And, until we got to this point. When then when there are no more flattering to the state theories published, then maybe the publishing dries up entirely. But that's my own subjective, yeah, I mean, I cynical think, take. You know, the, the intelligence community is always going to have its aims, though, right? I mean, we, we've talked a lot. And I think, I don't know if I mentioned this on the show, but I know I think yesterday or maybe it was last week, you and I talked about the Psychological Operations Unit. And I was telling you about how the, the military literally has a unit that is designed and orchestrate disinformation campaigns against foreign adversaries. But some people who have now become aware of this particular unit have wondered, well, what if they're testing this stuff out on us? And so I say that to say, I wouldn't necessarily be surprised, Bree, if the Intelligence Committee has sort of given the media information that they want the media to purport yes. on that may not even be true. And the media, like, like you're saying, which I believe is accurate, they're just taking, like, oh, well, it comes from CIA sources or NSA sources, so we got to run with this. Why would they lie to us? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm inclined to think that that's the likeliest story. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, too, and please. there haven't been many opportunities to investigate. I mean, yeah. there was, I think, a was it a Norwegian, a Norwegian or Danish? One Scandinavian country was put in tasked with mm -hmm. uh, doing the investigation. There were people, I think, Russia and I think one other ally voted in support of there being an independent UN investigation. Mm -hmm. That all of the other countries allied, uh, perhaps under the thumb of Western interests. Yeah. Declined, I believe, Aaron Mate, Aaron Mate uh, uh, and um, Seymour Hirsch, and I think one other uh, journalist that we had on the show, all gave testimony in favor of there being an independent UN investigation. Because why wouldn't you want there to be an independent UN That's investigation? It's never going to come. And it was they all they the yeah. rest of the the members and nations voted that down. Um, so here we are a yeah. year later yeah. with uh, I mean, none I, the wiser. I, I think it was a strategic move by the United States based on everything you sort of laid out, I think, based on uh, Hirsch's articles. I, I think the U.S. had an interest in doing this. And again, I can't think of too many countries, even the countries with the capabilities that, that you mentioned, I think you said even Denmark may have that capability. We yeah, certainly so. know Russia has a capability. Brie, I don't think those other countries, though, would have the influence in convincing the other UN allied nations to vote against investigating this the way the U.S. can, which again is why I believe we were probably behind this. Oh, well, maybe we'll finally get some more insights in the, in the next 365 <laughs> days to the anniversary of the Nord Stream pipeline. But until then, stick around. We have more Rising for you coming up right after this. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau blasted the invitation of Nazi-linked veteran Yaroslav Hunka to Canada's Parliament Friday, where he was met with a standing ovation. Here's what he told reporters yesterday. Obviously, it's extremely upsetting that this happened. Uh, the speaker, speaker has uh, acknowledged his mistake uh, and has apologized. Uh, but this is something that is deeply embarrassing to the Parliament of Canada and, by extension, to all Canadians. I think particularly of Jewish MPs and all members of the Jewish community across the country who are uh, celebrating Yom, or commemorating Yom Kippur today. Trudeau seemed to blame the mishap on Russian propaganda. Let's take a look. I think it's going to be really important that all of us push back against Russian propaganda, Russian disinformation, and continue our steadfast and unequivocal support for Ukraine uh, as uh, we did last week with announcing uh, further measures to stand with Ukraine in uh, Russia's illegal war against it. 
Shermichael, what does Russia have to do uh, with Bri, this? Bri, I was going to ask you that same question. I am baffled by that response. <laughs> the Russians didn't force the Canadians to invite this guy and then give him a standing ovation. I mean, that was bizarre. It was bizarre, but it is not uh, out of or, turn, exactly. Yeah, it is yeah. It is completely consistent with what has been going on um, in, among liberals, where every uh, faux pas, every misstep seems so easily attributed to somehow Putin. I mean, this, this whole um, scandal has uh, provoked an interesting uh, debate, at least on leftist Twitter, about whether or not um, there, people are kind of using, on the, on the right, are using this moment and making fun of Trudeau uh, and dunking on the embarrassment of the Canadian Parliament giving a Nazi a, sta a standing ovation as a way to, uh, to kind of wash their hands of their own kind of entanglement with various Nazi actors over the years. Um, Lauren Loomer um, was dunking on a clip of this standing ovation, and people were pointing out that she was known to have been having a very intimate social interaction um, with uh, the well-dressed Nazi, whose name just flew out of my head. Um, the famous white supremacist who was down at the you will not replace us rally. Richard Spencer, oh, sorry, Richard Spencer. Spencer. Whatever happened to that guy? Well, wow. for a while there, he was consorting with Lauren Loomer at the bar. And so there's this question of, you know, is there a certain opportunism at play here yeah. among some conservatives who are saying, well, if I, if I make fun of Canadians for doing this, maybe everybody will forget all the Nazis I've been hanging out with. Um, Nick Fuentes is in the where are, Brie, where are these? I mean, it's am not I in a bubble? Many. I've never—well, I won't say never, but at least to my knowledge, I have not ever been around a Nazi. I don't think I've ever hung out with any Nazis. So, like, where are people finding all of these Nazis all of a well, sudden? Well, that's a good question, because they do—you would think they'd be relatively hard to find. Yes. But here they are having dinner with Donald Trump in the form of Nick Fuentes, yes. hanging out with Kanye West. Getting standing ovations. Uh, getting— yeah, here I think we actually have the Lauren Loomer tweet here for you to look at. Oh, this is this is my response to it. She has, she had tweeted uh, down below um, a quote tweet uh, and laughing about uh, exactly Ukrainian Nazis, you know, mm. presumably condemning them. And I, you know, pointed out that that's her and Richard Spencer pictured there in a rather intimate sort of uh, embrace. You know, and, and I, it's, I just, it kind of it feels like everybody's wrong, right? Every, yeah, <laughs> there's just yeah, too many Nazis afoot, yeah. generally speaking. It is just really odd to me that these folks are popping up everywhere. Maybe it just appears everywhere because we're talking about it. But in my everyday life, I mean, I hang around a lot of people that are very diverse. I, I mean, Brie, I just don't ever recall seeing anybody or having conversations about, man, you know, so-and-so was hanging out with a Nazi yesterday, but yet all of our political actors appear <laughs> to be hanging out, supporting, having dinner, giving applause to, taking advice from people who clearly have beliefs that we, I think most Americans would say, aren't representative of our values in this country. Yeah, I mean, they're, the, the line the approach that's been taken by many conservatives is to push back against arguments from liberals and the left that there has been a rise in anti-Semitism and sure. hate crimes. Mm -hmm. um, Elon Musk has insisted that that's not the case on Twitter. People have insisted broadly that um, arguments in favor or arguments that seem to support a rise in hate crimes are a tool of authoritarianism. 
you know, yeah. people wanting to implement more hate crime laws um, and to ratchet up penalties for whatever is deemed hate crime, want you to believe in those statistics, even though they're, they're not true. So there's pushback. And it is frustrating because there's so much politicization in the conversation. You know, it came up on the show recently and it seemed like there was nothing, there was no source I could cite for that would satisfy Robbie as credible that would point to any evidence of there being more incidents of uh, racial, racially, eth ethnically, or religiously motivated crimes. And so if we're in a place where you think that anybody who's doing that research is biased because they're trying to... Because of the politics. Because of the politics yeah. of it. Yeah. Then we're in a world where what we just don't measure that's, if there's hate see, crimes that's the and, part of until politics people are frog marching down that, the street. That I really hate. I have to be honest, and I love politics. But I don't think we should be in a place where we can't have open and honest conversations about hatred. I mean, there, there is nothing acceptable about that. You know, I mean, I have grandparents, for goodness sakes, who grew up in the segregated South that are still alive. Of course. So to me, those conversations, and there is no debate on this. We, we shouldn't debate this. We shouldn't be hanging out with people who are Nazis. We just shouldn't. Well, sure, End of con whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, <laughs> there's just no excuse, in my opinion, to hang out with those sorts of people. And I am, again, baffled that this seemingly continues to happen from our hip-hop artists to politicians in the U.S. to the Canadian Parliament. And what's weird to me, Brian, we spoke about this yesterday, not a single person on any of these individuals' staff research these people to say, wait a minute, we should not invite this person to dinner in the case of Trump, because Trump said, I didn't know who or this guy was. Or they did, and they don't care. Or, or that. Or in the case of Canada, I think the member who invited him, he said, I had no clue who this guy was. How is that possible? I mean... You'd, to research people, you'd have to have people in doing investigations and like studying white supremacy and studying anti-Semitism, and, and people aren't interested in doing that. You have, I'm sorry, you have Republicans shutting down entire departments of colleges that study the history of racism and how not to repeat some of these mistakes of history because apparently learning about black studies or anti-black racism is not considered to be. Viable. I think you you have a debate on the left that's going on right now about whether or not Cornell West is it's appropriate for him to even bring up the idea of white supremacy if if it's too woke for him to reference white supremacy. I mean, look, I, I just I am of the belief, and I hope I'm right about this, that most people who watch this show, most Americans generally speaking, do not stand on the side of hate. Whether they're Republican, whether they're Democrats, I think most of the Canadian people, Canada's a beautiful place, I've been many times, I think most of them are likely appalled by what they saw from their elected officials. Uh, so I, I, I just, I want to hope, I want to believe that this is not representative of most people. And I think most people go on about their daily lives interacting with a whole host of different people without any problems. And then we have these instances that remind us that these things still exist, unfortunately. Well, journalist Glenn Greenwald chimed in on X, saying it's obviously shocking that Trudeau, Zelensky, and the entire Canadian Parliament gave a standing ovation to a Nazi soldier. But it's not surprising. The last decade, Western political and media circles warned Nazism was dominant in Ukraine, especially among its fighters. And that's true. I think yesterday on the show, I pointed to the fact that there was, uh, in, the two, in a 2018 uh, spending bill tucked into by Rokana and I believe yeah. some others, um, a provision saying that our funding to Ukraine has to very specifically not go to the Azov Battalion and Nazis. 
Which I, which is so funny because I did research that yesterday, and you mentioned it. I was able to find it, and remember, I asked. I said, "Well, Bree, what has changed?" So, Bree, I did try to find mm -hmm. if there were any recent or updated reports that showcased the House put together a select subcommittee to sort of investigate these claims. Mm -hmm. Say, okay, we investigated. It's not true. We're going to give the money. Bree, I couldn't find a single thing. And I looked. I, mm -hmm. I looked for like two hours yesterday. I could not find a single thing, which goes to the point that I think you and I both agreed. They just don't particularly care. And that's Democrats and Republicans. I'm not choosing one side or the other on this, because both yeah. of them are supporting sending hundreds of billions of dollars uh, to Ukraine uh, for this proxy war in, in Russia. And again, I understand the arguments that have been made by leaders on both sides. I understand the arguments that's been made by uh, the, the defense officials, the president, et cetera. But again, I don't think most people are comfortable sending money to Nazis. I, I don't think most Americans are okay with that. Well, I, they think, I, I think many of them are because they just don't believe that, that a significant portion of the people in Ukraine are Nazis. And I, and I don't think that they are. I think well, yeah, I'm a, not, a, a minority. I want to be clear. I'm not saying it's, that. It's just a question of what your comfort level are. It's people will say, yeah. well, there are a number of people, a significant number of people in the American military who espouse racist views and other kinds of bigoted views that I don't support. Um, but so, the comfort level of— That is what it is. But the comfort level of our members was clearly not very high in 2018, which you educated me on. And again, it goes back to that point, why are they all, all of a sudden comfortable now? What's changed? Yeah, that, I can find a change. Well, I, I think the big question is, even if there are a small percentage of the population— why do they all end up in Congress and being awarded medals by Jon Stewart and on the front page of the New York Times? Like, I can accept that it's a, it's a minority within a minority sure. and that you shouldn't tarnish the good reputation of all of the Ukrainians. But then somebody has some questions to answer about why, if you're picking a Ukrainian soldier out of a hat to Just come and be awarded, be why, is it, why is it a Nazi? An actual 90—how old is he? Someone who's literally not just, like, the this grandson of a Nazi. a long time. Fully a first-hand, yeah. I fought against the Russians, For our allies. Adolf Hitler. For Hitler. For Hitler. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we'll have more rising for you right after this. President Joe Biden is visiting the United Auto Workers picket line in Wayne County, Michigan today, a first for a sitting president. And according to CNN, he'll be joined by UAW President Sean Fain. Biden posted his support on X for the labor movement shaking up the auto industry, but also in Hollywood, where a tentative deal was reached over the weekend to end the writer strike, writing, quote, all workers, including writers, actors and auto workers, deserve a fair share of the value they helped create. Meanwhile, on Tuesday, the United Farm Workers endorsed Biden's reelection effort. The union's president, Teresa Romero, wrote, quote, United Farm Workers has seen firsthand the positive impact that President Biden has made in the economic standing and labor rights and daily lives of farm workers across America. I mean, no surprise there, Bree, that the union decided to endorse the president. But I guess my question for you— The Farm Workers Union, the, just to be clear. The not Farm the Workers, yeah, let me be clear UAW. on that. Um, do you think that the president, though, has sort of done enough for working-class people? Of course not. But he's hoping that the fact that we live in a corporately captured two-party system means that him doing more, uh, quite a bit more, than mm -hmm. Donald Trump is enough. And Republicans make it easy for Democrats to do the bare minimum by doing nothing at all. And— uh, 
very little is actually delivered for the American people because uh, both corporate parties go a great do a great deal to prevent uh, a third-party alternative from emerging. So here we are. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, Nikki Haley, I think, made some interesting comments about Tim Scott's remarks on just fire the workers. Mm -hmm. And I just kept thinking to myself, like, what group of Americans are you <laughs> trying to target with that statement? I mean, because many Republicans are working-class people. Now, yep. they may not belong to a union necessarily, but... Yeah, unfortunately, many of them don't belong to unions because uh, in red states, they the have states, yeah. really uh, draconian uh, rules to block people from being from able to organize home, their yeah. workplace, mm -hmm. these so-called right-to-work states, very cleverly branded, but they prevent many workers in the South from being able to do exactly what these uh, auto workers are doing, which is to, in all likelihood, successfully Lobby this is probably for a, political, a political win for the president, then. Is it fair to say that, you think? Uh, I think so. Uh, I think so. But this the idea of uh, Republicans alienating labor and not having a really compelling message for working-class people outside of culture war issues has been something that's been going yeah, on for, for decades. Yeah. Uh, Donald Trump looked like he was trying to turn that around back in 2016 when he was critical of bipartisan uh, legislation like NAFTA, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the consequence of which was American jobs being sent overseas so that we could earn a few more pennies on the dollar yeah. for executives, while Americans lost their livelihoods, and we saw the decimation of all of those towns in the Midwest. And Donald Trump went around the Midwest and said, we're going to bring these jobs back, we're going to build these factories. That didn't exactly and, come to fruition. You know what's so funny you say that? Ron DeSantis posted, his campaign posted a video, I think a couple days ago, with Trump making all these promises, and DeSantis was pretty much like, you didn't do any of these things for hardworking people. And when I looked at the responses, they were all criticizing. I mean, this is so crazy. Criticizing Ron DeSantis? They were criticizing DeSantis, saying, well, why are you going after Trump? And I thought to myself, like, well, guys, I mean, he actually is pointing out what Trump stated and saying what Trump didn't do. I'm not saying you can't support Trump, but again, we should be able to be critical. People should be holding Trump accountable for his own campaign yeah. promises. Uh, I mean, if you like Trump, Fine. That's okay. But your goal should be to yeah. push him to be the to person be that he yeah. to be better. said he was going to be. Don't validate him just for, you know, punching the air during a rally or saying the funny thing. I mean, he's a funny guy. Yeah, like, you should very be validated. Like, how, how secure do you have to be in life? How little do you need? How wealthy do you have to be to be more invested in whether or not a politician says the right things about a trans person when you probably never met a trans person in your entire life, mm -hmm. when you are in a country that I'm sorry to have to be a broken record, has not had a minimum wage raise in the longest period of time since the invention of the minimum wage, yeah, yeah. like in 1938. Well, I, think, <laughs> I think that the point that the DeSantis camp was making was that, which was a, a, a very salient point, which is that Republicans need to have a response to the Democratic response in terms of workers and these strikes. Yeah. I think these strikes are going to continue. You and I had a really unique conversation yesterday about what some of my positions would be mm -hmm. as a conservative and how I would try to work with workers and empower workers and pay them a fair wage. And, and, I, and I know we had some disagreement there, Bree, but I do think it's possible to have a pro-capitalist, pro-conservative message for workers, and we're not even seeing any effort, I would argue, from most of the Republican candidates in that regard. And I personally would like to see that. No, it's been trickle-down economics for 50 years. It's been, well, the CEO pay is high, and don't worry, somehow that $24 million a year salary is going to come down to you, worker, 
who sacrificed and made cuts to your pension programs yeah. when there was the auto crisis in 2008. But while the industry has recovered and while the billionaires at the top of the work hierarchy have recovered, you are earning uh, inflation-adjusted wages that are worse, not only worse than they were in 2008, but worse than they were in 1980. Yeah. yeah, and one of the things, I mean, so, so for the audience, you guys are probably wondering what I'm talking about. Brie raised interesting points to me. She said, well, Shermichael, what if we permitted a worker to be a part of the board of a company? I actually agreed with that. Uh, my position, I said, well, if I were a CEO, I, I think there are some very tangible things that a worker, someone who's in the weeds, would be able to bring to the table that everyone else in that boardroom just won't be able to. They don't have the experience. Most of them haven't struggled in God knows how long. I think there's valuable insight there. Uh, Bree mentioned the point of workers having an ownership stake in the company. Yeah, or worker, worker ownership, ownership. worker cooperatives. Um, is, is my, that I didn't necessarily disagree with that. I said I would want a stock option. Bree wanted a different option. So, so again, guys, the point that I'm trying to make here is Bree and I may want to approach this differently. But what I'm trying to say is that I think a conservative breed can make the case for workers and still hold true to their conservative values. I don't have an issue with the CEO necessarily making good money, but I also want the people who are doing the labor to also do well. I mentioned a Harvard study that a friend of mine sent a while ago to Bree that studied some companies in Silicon Valley. And what they showcase is when workers are paid well, there's good health care, et cetera, that the work output is greater, thus leading to greater revenue for the company. To me, I would think any conservative person who likes to make money would say that is a net gain for all of the investors, the board members, all the way down to the average worker. So why not adopt some of those positions and articulate them to the American people? I certainly agree that there are conservative values that um, we could agree about. I think they include helping your neighbor, not letting people go hungry, um, providing for people in your community. Um, but unfortunately, those values contrast very sharply with the political conservative approach to politics, which operates on the singular principle of maximizing profit. And if you singularly value maximizing profit, that means shipping a job overseas if it's going to make the members of the board and shareholders mm -hmm. a fraction of a dollar more, even if it devastates communities. It means not investing into the company to, for long-term benefit of the company, improving personnel, improving training people, improving the technolo technology you're using, mm -hmm. investing in the parts and machinery, et cetera. If you can flip the company and make a quick sell and enrich yourself, and all of those perverse incentives that have been driven by a form of very strict capitalism that is validated by our legal system, which says that the judgment of whether a CEO has behaved appropriately and is vulnerable to suit or not is this business judgment rule, which assesses whether or not they've been acting in a way that a reasonable yeah. person could think <clears throat> improves the lot of who? Shareholders. shareholders. Not yeah. workers. Yeah. Shareholders. Can I ask you this question? That, that's why we're here. I, I think that's a good point. And, and, and Bree raised this point yesterday where her and I were talking, and I'm, I'm going back to the conversation because I've thought a lot about what you and I discussed once I left and went home, and I thought you raised a lot of good points that I never really thought about. Mm. And I was thinking to myself, when you raised that point to me about, well, you said, Shermichael, even if you were to have someone on the board, if most of the members decide to sell the company, they're going to sell the company. I said, well, Bree, that is what it is, majority rules. And you said, but that's not necessarily fair for the workers. And it's not the majority. And, and it's the majority of the board, of the not the board. majority and, and, of the and people I thought, who work there. I thought about that, and we had some disagreement. And I thought to myself, I said, well, what if the workers also got a percent, Bree, of the sale? Would you be amendable to that? It's not about whether I would be amendable. 
in a bullet. Well, I'm just asking for the conversation, though. Well, but the workers would assess whether or not sure. it was better, the benefit of, for all of them to go ahead and sell the company. If it's enough money, I can see them that making that kind of decision. Think? Yeah, but the okay. point is it should be a decision that's made by everybody who's impacted. Yeah, yeah no, I'm not by, disagreeing. By I'm just trying to see how open you are to what I would yeah, perhaps put positive as a reasonable position. Yeah, the point is that it's a, it's a democratic decision so that all of the costs and benefits are spread mm -hmm. evenly among the community and not just the cost borne by the workers and the benefits borne by the elite uh, ruler class. Yeah, yeah. But we should mention that former President Trump blasted Biden ahead of his picket line visit. Trump said in a statement, Joe Biden's draconian and indefensible electric vehicle mandate will annihilate the U.S. auto industry and cost countless thousands of auto workers their jobs. The only thing Biden could say today that would help the striking auto workers is to announce the immediate termination of his ridiculous mandate. Anything else is just a feeble and insulting attempt to distract American labor from this vicious Biden betrayal. <laughs> I mean, okay. I, I think that's what's so interesting about um, labor uh, and the intimacies of the relationships that people develop through the kind of solidaristic actions that they're taking yeah. right now is that somebody sitting on Twitter and saying something or saying something on CNN doesn't have nearly the impact as your union leader who you know and who has been fighting for you to get real wages, who knows what you've been going through, whose hands have been dirty, who sat next to you in the cafeteria and in the locker room. The things that they say sure. matter a lot more. And we've heard what Sean Fain has to say about Donald Trump, but I will remind the audience. He made a statement last week that said, every fiber of our union is being poured into fighting the billionaire class in an economy that enriches people like Donald Trump at the expense of workers. We can't keep electing billionaires and millionaires that don't have any understanding of what it is like to live paycheck to paycheck and struggle to get by and expecting them to solve the problems of the working class. So we'll see who wins out. But what was interesting statements. to me about that is that Donald Trump does well with working class white voters. And I would imagine that some of those voters in Michigan may potentially be a part of the union. I'm not certain yeah, I'm sure what percent of them uh, agrees with, with Mr. Fain there. But again, I, I just go back to this point in, in part for the people who are going to be watching this. I do think that there is a way for conservatives to strike the right tone and balance on workers. And I, I think we have to. I mean, I, I have a, a, another good friend of mine. He's a conservative and he focuses a lot on climate. I'm a hunter, and he and I have had very long conversations, Bree, on the need for conservatives to have a positive position on the environment, which we once had 60, 70 years ago. Just another example. Yeah, well, you know, some white, white working class voters like Trump for culture reasons. Sure, and the sure. question is, can you make a case that culture matters more to people who are literally in the middle of a strike. And this is why I think it's so important to have a union action, labor action, and people really invested in the economic realities that each political party offers up to it. More rising after this. Please do stick around. We've got some developing news this morning. J.P. Morgan will pay $75 million to settle a U.S. Virgin Islands lawsuit alleging the baking giant facilitated disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking operation. The bank confirmed its settlement includes $30 million to support charitable organizations and $25 million to strengthen law enforcement to combat human trafficking. Back in June, J.P. Morgan committed over $290 million to settle lawsuits brought by victims of Epstein's abuse. He was a client of the bank from 1998 to 2013. J.P. Morgan said in a statement, quote, while the settlement does not involve admissions of liability, the firm deeply regrets any association with this man and would have never have continued doing business with him if it believed he was using the bank in any way to commit his heinous crimes. A trial has been scheduled for the 23rd of October. You think the bank really didn't know 
I mean, because I remember reading an article that he was moving so much money around that most banks have practices in place where they call the individual or even notify the government, depending on how large the transactions are, to say, wait a minute, this is kind of weird. This is odd behavior. And they never did that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to try to pull it up now, uh, but my short answer is no. Uh, and for two reasons. One, mm -hmm. because people don't tend to settle when they think they have a slam dunk case and a lot <laughs> right. of money. So some people settle because they can't afford to litigate the case. Of course. Right? But you're J.P. Morgan, so the implications of this are such that I think they settled because they knew it wasn't going to look good for them. Yeah. I think the second reason is, well, part of why they know it's not going to look good for them is because what has already come out in some of these depositions and um, discovery requests out of the Virgin Islands case include these emails um, with a, uh, a senior uh, banker mm -hmm. whose name is escaping me, in which they were emailing back and forth, he and Jeffrey Epstein, talking oh, wow. very suggestively about Disney princesses and little girls, and no they clearly way. had a personal relationship and wow. they considered each other very good yeah. friends. So to the extent that there were, were any protocol that were overlooked, it could be because Jeffrey Epstein had a personal relationship with people at the bank who were supposed to be doing the kinds of checks. Yeah, that I just mentioned, and, just they, mentioned. and they clearly were not. Because and you know what, uh, Bria, I also wonder if, and I remember one reporter making this point, that Epstein at one, one point in time has so much money, cash, in his J.P. Morgan accounts that, you know, banks don't hold a significant amount of cash. They're always lending in and out. Money's coming in and going out. It just flows. Uh, that's just a natural part of banking. And they didn't say anything because they were benefiting from the large amount of cash that Epstein had at one point in time in one of his accounts. And so to me, I mean, this settlement, I'm not sure if it goes far enough, but to your point, I think it would be far worse if the bank actually went through a trial process. Going through discovery, they would, may end up paying over a billion dollars, potentially. Yeah, and we saw, <laughs> we saw this happen with Fox News. <laughs> That's Those emails right. came out, and they wreaked havoc far beyond the implications of the actual lawsuit. Yeah. Um, many people have opined that the reason that Tucker Carlson was ultimately let go of Fox was because of unflattering statements that he made about the Murdochs that they couldn't let stand, less so, or in addition to the fact that, you know, so much money had just been lost. Yeah, almost um, a billion dollars. That there was also the personal implications of those emails uh, coming out. Yeah. Uh, so who knows what more? I, I mean, the, the implications here, I would argue there are a few things that are more important than uh, alleging that an election has been stolen or not stolen. Mm -hmm. I think child predation is one of those things. And I, if I were in the position of J.P. Morgan Chase, I would very much not want any more um, stuff that, to come out. Like what we've seen already, Jess, Jess Staley is the name of the uh, executive I, I was mentioning. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And we've read some of those email back and forth on this show before. But yes, it, it involved referring to um, girls uh, by the name of various Disney princesses. What character would you like next? Epstein Which could wrote be a code Beauty word. and the Beast. Yeah. Yeah. Staley replied, Well, one side is available. In Beauty or the Beast, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the kind of thing that they're dealing. So it almost with. sounds like you know, if, if if you were to do further discovery, Bree, we might find that Epstein was supplying J.P. Morgan Chase bankers with underage girls. I mean, girls. that's obviously I mean, speculative. Speculative, of course. Who knows? But who knows what? I mean, is you going you, on. you settle for a reason because you. I mean, of course, Chase 
with all of their capabilities financially, they are well aware of how bad it could be for them. Yeah. And like a smart entity, they decided, let's settle this and, and sweep this under the rug yeah. so we can keep moving. Just like Fox decided to end the bleeding with that lawsuit, pay 700 plus million, and over the, what, I think two or three billion they were actually suing for? Yeah. A substantial amount of money. Yeah. Staley referred to Epstein as a profound friend, uh, and there's a trove of 1,200 emails. Um, he says, say hi to Snow White, I owe you so much. In, in yeah, one of the emails. Yeah, I don't mean how much suggestive, but I mean, I think my point kind of stands in terms of Epstein potentially offering some of these young women to bankers uh, at the bank. But you know what's interesting? This guy was, he was friends with a lot of people. Yes. Democrats, Republicans, presidents, CEOs of major companies, and we have yet to get to the bottom of how he really made his wealth. I think we'll find that out right after we are told who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. Oh, well, we'll still be waiting <laughs> on that. Then, Bree, I want to hold my breath. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I do think one other part of this that's interesting is that this lawsuit seemed to only really get legs in the context of the Virgin Islands. Now, we have covered yeah. on the show that there were other times at which various officials in the Virgin Islands seem to have been bought by Epstein. Mm -hmm. um, he was paying for the college tuition for the daughter of one public official. Uh, and there was an effort to, I think a successful effort, to change some of the laws of uh, the Virgin Islands so that they were advantageous to Epstein in his um, criminal activities, changing the child, the sex offender laws uh, in the country. Um, but at a certain point, there seems to have been this effort um, by the prosecutor there now to, to not pull any punches. And yeah. they were successfully able to get a lot of this deposition transcript, uh, testimony and the like, which seems to have really turned um, incentivized uh, J.P. Morgan to bend the knee. I think this is a good thing. I mean, I was just talking a few days ago with my girlfriend about the number of young women who disappear in this country every single day. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about it, uh, Bree, in terms of young black girls in particular, obviously. Um, you know, we're gonna have kids at some point, and so she wanted me to be aware of the statistics on this. And I was heartbroken, Bree, by the number of young women in general, of every ethnicity, disappear, they don't get a lot of attention. Most of these families are poor, struggling, hardworking people. And in reading the article that she shared with me, the number one cause was child sex trafficking. Mm. These young ladies are being trafficked all over the world, Bree. And we're not talking about this stuff. Yeah, well, it's ironic because I think the Epstein case was an opportunity to have exactly yeah, that kind of conversation. And somehow it, it, it it wasn't. It, it always seemed more about the man than the victims. Mm -hmm. But um, maybe at some point that will change, uh, perhaps as a consequence of some of the media attention around uh, these settlements from J.P. Morgan so, Chase. I hope so, Bree. I'm not. Again, I'm not going to hold my breath because powerful people would always protect their own. Um, but I think we need to have a voice for those families and a voice for those young ladies. Yeah. Well, that's it for us today on Rising. Sure, Michael, it was a pleasure yeah, as always. Yeah, I loved it. A lot of fierce debate today. Bree <laughs> <laughs> almost strangled me today, guys, but she hung Hardly. with me, so I appreciate you, Bree. Hardly. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to being back here right here tomorrow. Yeah. Please do come back and join us. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye. Take care, guys.